This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Sonos, maker of the Sonos Move, a portable smart speaker that delivers detailed sound and rich bass in every kind of room and outdoors. I know this because I've been listening to my Sonos Move everywhere I can. In the morning, it's podcasts in the show. Outside Magazine and PRX. During the workday, it's at my desk, where I have the move sitting on its charging base and teed up with my Please Help Me Get Stuff Done playlist. For my afternoon break, I bring it to the backyard basketball court for pick-me-up tunes while I try to beat my hoops-obsessed eight-year-old in games, of course. And in the evening, it's in my bedroom, playing chill-out music to help me wind down. What makes the Sonos Move sound so good in so many different spaces is automatic true play tuning, which uses the speaker's microphones to adapt the move to the unique acoustics of where you are and what you're listening to. Which means music, podcasts, audiobooks, and everything else sound the way they were intended. The Move works with all your streaming services, and control is simple with the Sonos app, Apple AirPlay 2, or your voice using Amazon Alexa or Google Assistant while on Wi-Fi. And when you're outside and beyond the reach of Wi-Fi, you can switch to Bluetooth mode in seconds while the battery lasts for up to 11 hours. Learn more about how the Sonos Move delivers brilliant sound anywhere you listen and order yours now at Sonos.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. All right. So you want to go first or me? Um, I think you you just want to dive in and sort of introduce yourself with your name and what you do. You got it. So my name is Bill Finnegan. I'm a writer and a lifelong surfer. live in New York City. Grew up in California and Hawaii. That's where I learned to surf. And moved to New York as an adult thinking, oh, you know, this is the end of my surfing life. And it wasn't. Thank God for that. Because if Bill Finnegan had stopped surfing, he might not have written what has become perhaps the most beloved book about the sport. I'm talking about Barbarian Days, which he published in 2015. It's a memoir that chronicles his lifelong obsession with chasing and riding waves, and everything that goes along with that. The friendships, the adventures, and the near disasters. But Barbarian Days isn't just a fantastic book about surfing. It's a downright fantastic read. It won the Pulitzer Prize for autobiography. He doesn't consider himself a surf writer at all, despite having written for surf mags. That's outside Articles editor Matt Skenazy who you heard talking with Bill at the start of the episode. He's written a lot about corruption in dangerous places, basically. He's written about Mexican drug cartels. I think he's reported from Nicaragua during the revolution there. He's reported from Africa during, you know, pretty tense and dangerous situations. So sort of on a very different end of the spectrum from, like, traveling to an exotic locale and just scoring waves. Bill has been a staff writer at The New Yorker, for many years, where he did publish one memorable surfing story back in 1992. It was called Playing Doc's Games, 
and it was about riding big waves at San Francisco's Ocean Beach and overcoming fear. For decades, that was referred to as the best piece of surf riding ever. Matt first met Bill in 2012, when Matt was a young journalist just out of college and working on a piece about corruption in Central America. He was passing through New York City, and he reached out to Bill to ask if he could come by his office to pick his brain. Bill said, sure, I can give you 30 minutes. And I came in, and, you know, the office was covered in newspapers and documents all over the place. But there was also a stack of basically every surf magazine that exists. There was, you know, dozens and dozens of them stacked up on coffee tables and chairs. And we ended up talking for about three hours, mostly about surfing. Matt and Bill have stayed in touch ever since, exchanging photos and reports from especially good waves or epic trips. And so when we decided to put together back-to-back episodes about surfing this month, Matt reached out to Bill to see if he'd be willing to tell us a story. Ultimately, Bill decided to share one of his most harrowing experiences in the water. It's an event that he wrote about in Barbarian Days, though some new wrinkles surface in this retelling. It's also a story that gets at just how much surfing has changed in recent decades, for better and for worse. Matt, who grew up surfing in Santa Cruz, California, and previously worked as an editor for Surfing Magazine, knows a bit about this himself. There's just so many more people who surf now. And part of that is because it's just so much easier. The wetsuits have gotten better, so it's not as cold. More importantly, the the forecasting has gotten a whole lot better. When I was a little kid, I remember going to my friend's dad's house, and he had one of those old NOAA weather radios that had a sort of robotic voice telling you what the buoy readings were. Or less. You know, that's how you would see a a swell coming in. Other than that, is you just go check the waves multiple times every day. And now you just go on Surfline and you can watch a live feed of most popular surf breaks. As far as going on a surf trip, it takes a lot of the guessing out of it. In some ways, that's great because you're not wasting time to, to go halfway across the world and then end up playing cards on the beach. But it also removes a little bit of the kind of sense of adventure of like going out into the unknown and not really knowing what you're going to get. That element of unpredictability is at the heart of Bill's story. It began in the mid-1990s, when Bill was living in New York City and surfing a lot with a guy named Peter Spacek, who'd grown up in California and had come to New York to work as a professional illustrator. Peter had introduced Bill to some of the breaks off Montauk, out on the east end of Long Island. And then one day, he showed Bill an article in a surf magazine about an unnamed spot somewhere in the world with big, empty waves. Really, really beautiful waves. And as usual, they don't say where it is. They're supposed to keep it a secret, but they hadn't tried very hard. And Peter said, I figured out where this is. Do you want to go there? And I said, yes, yes, yes. And he said, okay, it's the island of Madeira, Portuguese island, you know, where the wine comes from, about 600 miles off the coast of Morocco, I think, way out in the middle of the Atlantic. It turned out those photos didn't show the coast. Like, you couldn't see the rocks, the cliffs. It's this very steep, rugged, rugged island, just, you know, giant cliffs flying out of the water on all sides. So that wasn't in the the photos that first lured me to Madeira and turned out to be a sort of crucial element in the, like, the fear factor, besides the big waves. As Peter told Bill at the time, Madeira seemed well-positioned to get hit with winter swells from the North Atlantic. 
And so the two of them took the first of what would become an annual pilgrimage to the island. Pretty much the best spot was a, was a big point break called Jardim Domar, Garden of the Sea. Jardim is this little village down on a point at the bottom of giant cliffs. It's this beautiful little village, you know, tile roof, traditional Portuguese architecture, this nice big old church on the point, and these little lanes between the houses, all built before there were cars. People have gardens and a lot of water runs down off the mountain and irrigates the garden. See this little music of water running through these little troughs through the town. But that name, Jardim de Mar, the Garden of the Sea, I mean, just describes it. It's, it's sort of a picture postcard place. Bill fell in love with Madeira, especially Jardim del Mar, with its exceptional and empty big wave point break. As he tells it, the villagers had seen very few surfers. So when he and Peter would paddle out, people would often sit on a seawall and watch them ride the waves. And they really knew what they were looking at. I mean, this was their, their home, and they knew the sea very well. And so they'd whistle and, and kind of whistle us into position, like they could see a big set coming where we couldn't see it. And they'd be whistling, whistling, like, you know, move out, move out farther, no farther. So it was really fun to surf there. And sometimes it was scary. Peter did a memorable illustration of one big day we had there. He liked to draw these kind of narrative cartoons starring himself as this kind of anti-hero, this scraggly surfer with a huge nose. He had a nearly what we call a two-wave hold down. It's held down a long time and it was pretty scary. And the drawing that came out of that was of this surfer way into the water being beaten and starting to have little thoughts about his girlfriend, say goodbye to his, his dog, it was his little toy poodle. <laughs> so it, it had a, that edge, um, that place. Making things more challenging was the fact that they had little ability to predict what kind of waves would roll in on any given day. Or even, as they would soon find out, how the waves might change once they were in the water. We didn't, in those days, know what we were getting into. There just wasn't a reliable way to find out when the waves were going to be good. I'd draw these charts and try to figure out where the storm systems were. And, and I'd call this guy I knew who lived in the village and get him to go out and look at the waves and pair my predictions to what actually showed up there. And I could just never get it right. So we never really knew when it was going to be good or what was coming, you know, from day to day. You know, good winds, bad winds, big swell, no swell. On one trip to Madeira, Peter brought along a couple of old friends. Uh, really nice guys, but I felt kind of... Not crowded by it, but it changed the, the deal. And so one morning, when Peter and his friends chased waves on the island's north shore, Bill decided to surf at a couple breaks closer to the village. He came back in the late afternoon feeling tired, and just in time to see that the waves at Jardin del Mar were getting really good. I couldn't just watch it, so I paddled out and was surfing alone, and it started getting bigger. I was getting kind of nervous, and then Peter appeared. They'd come back, and he'd seen that I was out there and thought, ah, oh, you know, that's got to be Bill, and paddle out. So I was really glad to see him, and, and we started surfing together. And we had no idea what was coming. It was big, and it was getting bigger, and then it was really getting big, and the sun was sort of going down, and we started thinking about, like, we need to get in. And then these sets started marching in. I was actually on a gun, an eight-foot big wave board, and he was too, and it just kept getting bigger. And we started wondering if even these boards were big enough. We're just paddling over these sets. And at one point, this fishing boat came in. They came right up to us, 
And we just kind of waved to them and they eventually went away. And we just weren't sure what to make of that. I mean, you know, they must think we're nuts. We realized later that they understood what was going on. You know, these are just their waters and they could tell that a really huge swell was moving in. And they were basically offering us a ride, you know, get in our boat and we'll take you to some harbor. And I remember Peter at one point, we're paddling over the shoulder of these really big waves. And he asked me, what does Brock Little say? Brock Little is a great Hawaiian big wave surfer. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, what does he say? You're supposed to look at it or not supposed to look at it? Meaning, you know, look into the pit and see what the wave is doing when it's big to really get, you know, a realistic picture of how hard it's breaking or just not look at it and just, you know, just think about making the wave and escaping the breaking lip. And uh, I didn't know which thing Brock Little advised, but I thought not looking was probably a better idea because it was so unnerving to look. At a certain point, I said, we just have to go in. Let's just move in and pick up a mid-sized wave. Whatever happens, just get to shore. And Peter agreed with that. So Seth came, and he moved in for the first wave, and I thought he caught it. And the next wave after it was just huge. And I just thought, I have, to, I have to catch this. I don't want to be out here alone. And so I paddled for it, paddled really hard, like unnatural. Like I didn't look back at it really. I was kind of in position, but, but not, not really. Um, I just was going to go no matter what because I was scared and wanted to get in. I was just getting blown up the face, kind of getting knocked sideways. I wasn't really going to catch this wave. And I could start hearing Peter screaming. I thought he was screaming, go, go, go. And then as, as it got clearer, I could hear him saying, no, no, no. So I sort of flopped off my board and barely pulled out over the top, almost got sucked into the wave. And he hadn't caught his wave, and he was paddling back out, and he was telling me, don't go on that one. Peter said, you look like an ant on that wave. You're going backwards. You just had no chance of catching that wave or riding that wave. It was gigantic, and, and we didn't have the boards or the guts or the anything else. I mean, it was really getting too big. It was the biggest waves I'd ever seen from a surfboard. I've been surfing my whole life. At a certain point, I remember Peter saying, well, one good thing is we know that waves can't get any bigger than this. And I said, yeah, that's right, yeah, um, that's good. Because that sort of felt true, but it wasn't remotely true. We'll be right back. At the top of the episode, we talked about the Sonos Move, the premium portable smart speaker that delivers detailed sound and rich bass in every kind of room and outdoors. It's the perfect speaker for podcast listeners and even podcast creators. I know this because I recently gave one to my co-producer, Robbie Carver, who composes all the music for this show and does everything possible to make me sound much better than I do in person. It's very important that I keep Robbie happy and make him feel appreciated because, honestly, he's kind of sensitive. He's also an audio obsessive, so I knew he'd go gaga over the move's custom-designed woofer and tweeter, which balance deep bass and the highest frequencies. And I was certain that he'd be blown away by how the automatic True Play tuning adapts the speaker's equalizer to what he's playing and where he's listening, especially because the weatherproof and drop-resistant move are guaranteed to sound so good on that sweet back deck that he's always talking about. 
As a man who has little patience for overly complicated technology, I knew that Robbie would appreciate how easy it is to set up the move and also switch back and forth from Wi-Fi to Bluetooth mode. And as a guy who's always seeking out new sounds, Robbie is already digging Sonos Radio, which allows him to stream thousands of stations, including live radio from around the world and original programming, all for free through the Sonos app. By the way, Robbie, that's where I found that song that I keep hoping we can use for that one episode. Can we talk about that soon? The Sonos Move is the perfect speaker for discerning listeners. Learn more and order yours now at Sonos.com. Bill Finnegan had spent most of the day surfing before he and Peter Spacek got stuck outside the crash zone at Jardim del Mar. Eventually, the sun went down. And so, even with the waves getting bigger, they hatched a plan to get to shore. They decided they would angle along the coast and aim for the boat ramp where they usually got in the water. It was behind a seawall leading to a rocky point, and there were a number of villagers out on the point watching them and also signaling when a big set was coming. But as the surfers began paddling in, they encountered a new unexpected problem, the suddenly ripping current. We had never seen the current like this. I mean, it turned into the Colorado River on the inside. It was just this gigantic raging thing running. And once we got into it, it was like the village just flitted by it. We, we missed, we got maybe 50 yards from shore and just got thrown past the boat ramp. The village suddenly was in the rearview mirror. We're down in this weird part of the coast that we didn't know. And Peter yells outside and there's this another giant set coming down there. So we just paddle out and we actually got caught by a few waves, got pounded. But now we were really, I mean, we were a long way from the village and the current was carrying us away. This just empty coast, miles of just cliffs. And I was so tired from a whole day of surfing that I said, I'm just going to go in here. I'm just going to make for shore. And Peter sat there and studied the shore. It was sort of getting dark, but you could still see. And he said, no, it's impossible. You'll, you'll get killed if you try to go in here. I didn't think I'd get killed, but I thought I'd just, you know, it'd be ugly um, trying to clamber up onto the cliff or something. It seemed better than drowning, so... But he was really definite, do not, you can't do that. And uh, at that point, I was so tired, I kind of trusted his judgment better than mine. And, and I said, what do you think we should do? He said, we should paddle back to Jardim and go in there. And I said, I'm too tired. Our arms are just hanging off my shoulders. And I said, I'm just too tired. And he said, I'll stay with you. You know, that's the only way. Bill and Peter stayed far enough offshore to be outside of where the current was running, and they paddled slowly along in the darkness. They could see the lights of the village, and there were still people out on the seawall. They were waving flashlights to show the surfers where to come in. They decided to aim much higher up on the point this time, so they had a chance of making it to the seawall before the current would sweep them past the village. Of course, this meant that they'd be landing on the rocks in the dark, with huge waves likely crashing on top of them. The guys separated, so they wouldn't smash into each other, and they went for it. I remember just paddling and paddling. It was so unnatural to be paddling in and giant surf that you can't even see, and the water starts getting kind of foamy and, and has a 
different smell. You can sort of smell the sea bottom. You know you're in the impact zone now, but you don't know if any waves are coming. And then at a certain point, I heard some roaring, and then I looked up, and I get a little bit of light in the sky, and I could just see some water way up above me. And the idea was, though, to get pushed in. So rather than dive, you know, swim down to get out of the turbulence, I just stayed on the surface and just let it hit me, which was so unnatural. Tumbled me and tumbled me. And then I actually hit the bottom with my face, hit my forehead pretty hard, which really surprised me. Yeah, I thought we were still in really deep water. And I was right under the village lights. I was in quite close. And waves were slamming the seawall. And I hit the rocks, couldn't hang on to anything, just got pulled down and into this river-like current running down all the rocks. Another one hit me, sort of bouncing me across the rocks. And I came up on the seawall, couldn't hang on to it at all, just skidded across. But people started screaming because they, they saw me go by. And then I kind of got out of the current just because the way I fell off the wall, it was like a waterfall going above me and I was underneath it. And I could hang onto the rocks there. And then just went sort of clambering up onto the seawall. And, and there was Peter hitting up from the other side and just washing up. We just came, came running up to the other. One of the crazy things was that his friends were there among the crowd and they were, you know, glad to see us. And we were kind of in clinical shock, I think, but they were in worse shape than we were. And it turned out one of them said that he'd already formulated what he was going to say to Peter's mother. He was going to make the phone call. And the other guy said, I was doing the same thing. And, and, and they both felt really guilty about that, really upset and confused in a way that we weren't. You know, to us, to us it was simple. <laughs> you know, we got ashore. Can't imagine now being just completely blindsided by a 25, 30 foot swell. The surf forecasts have gotten so good. It was sort of a last experience of just paddling out and, and seeing what happens. Looking back, Peter saved my life by saying, no, you, you know, we got to paddle back and you, I'll stay with you and all that. Have you ever told Peter that you feel like he saved your life? You know, I don't think I ever put it in those words. It was a funny moment, though. Years later, I went to this surf slideshow. A bunch of guys I didn't know, surfers from around New York. And, and people were showing their slides from the various surf trips. And we didn't have a lot of good photos from Madeira, but we had a few, and Peter showed those, and people were ooing and eyeing over these you know, beautiful big waves. And then he had these two photos that kind of didn't mean anything to anybody else. The first one somebody had taken right when we came up off the little boat ramp. And I've got blood all my face and Peter's got this kind of glazed look throwing a shaka at the camera. And then another picture and it's just of, we had actually seen all the people and, and kind of turned away from them. It was, it was almost too much and we sort of sat on the edge of the seawall for a minute. So somebody took a photo of us, just these two black wetsuits shining in the, in the camera light, and we're looking out to sea. And, and that was it. And nobody asked what it meant, and you know, lights came up. But I heard Peter across the room say, uh, you know, I was thinking about putting my arm around your shoulder, but, you know, you know. And I sort of thought, yeah, I know. Wait. Matt, so I have a question. Do we actually know what Brock Little said about big waves? Are you supposed to look at them or not? You know, I asked Bill that question, and he, he said he wasn't sure. He, um, 
He had surfed with Brock a little bit after that session at Madeira, but forgot to ask him. And then Brock passed away in 2016. Hmm. But I did reach out to his brother, Clark, who's a surf photographer in Hawaii. Clark's a little hard to get a hold of right now because the waves have just been going off in Hawaii for the last two weeks. Right. But I was able to reach his manager who interviewed him right as he was in a dentist chair. Wait, wait. The only way we were able to get commentary from Clark Little was because he was sitting in a dentist chair and his manager interviewed him there? Yeah, that's right. He said his uh, Clark's mouth was numb before getting his teeth drilled, but he was able to get a couple questions to him. <laughs> What'd he say? Well, so he, he wrote me an email with the answers, uh, and he said, my brother would never recommend to look back into a big wave before you take off. No way. You just paddle and go. You look forward to where you're going, not behind you. If he was near you, he would just yell at you, go, go, go. That means you go and don't hesitate. Hmm. Well, okay, that's that's incredibly clear advice, obviously, but but that sounds like it's for for catching a wave, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and Bill would tell you that most big wave servers know that if you hesitate on a big wave, you're doomed from the get-go. And what Peter was asking about in Madeira was what to do when you're sort of just scraping for the horizon trying to get over a large wave and kind of control your your psyche. Uh-huh. So wait, so wait, did you get an answer to that? Unfortunately, I think Clark and his manager sort of misunderstood the question a little bit. And I don't know if that's uh, because it was a game of telephone or because uh, he was sitting in a tennis chair. Right. What this means, though, is uh, we still don't know the answer. We don't know what Brock Little would have said about where to look when you're trying to escape a crashing big wave. Yeah, that's right. We don't know. Huh. Bummer. Uh, I guess <laughs> I guess we got to get Clark back in a, in a dentist chair. Yeah, or, or, or just catch him in between huge swells in Hawaii. <laughs> right. Bill Finnegan's book, Barbarian Days, is available just about anywhere you might get your books. Matt Skenazy interviewed Bill for this episode, which was produced by me, Michael Roberts, with music by Robbie Carver. This episode was brought to you by Sonos, maker of the Sonos Move a portable smart speaker that delivers detailed sound and rich bass in every kind of room and outdoors. Learn more about the Sonos Move and order yours now at Sonos.com. We'll be back next week.